Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, November 15th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Good morning. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And as a reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So the election is over and Congress is back, at least for a little while. But the election isn't really over yet. There are dozens of races in Congress and the states that are either going to runoffs or where votes are still being counted. Uh, Nothing seems to have changed in that the the Democrats will still control the U.S. House next year and the Republicans will control the Senate, although it appears Republicans will have expanded their majority by fewer seats than we thought last week, possibly only by one. Um, Overall, with an extra week to choose over the results. What do we think the next Congress and the states looks like when it comes to health care? I think oversight is really going to be the the top thing because that's something that you can do with just one chamber of Congress. And so I think passing legislation with a divided Congress, a Democratic House and a Republican Senate is going to be extremely hard. There's maybe a couple things they could come together on. But I think that the House is just going to go hog wild with oversight um, in, you know, in a in a way that has not happened under the Republican control of the House. I think that they're going to be digging into all kinds of stuff with HHS. Uh, My colleague and I reported on this uh, before the election. Their plans, uh, they want to go after uh, the child separation policy that HHS was a part of. They want to go after this new contraception mandate and how that decision was made. They want to go after the decision not to defend the Affordable Care Act in court and whether the Justice Department, you know, what what evidence they looked at when making that decision. So there's there's plenty there. And and I mentioned some of the some mm-hmm. of the Medicaid um, waivers that they're yes. giving to the yes. states. Medicaid work, work requirements. requirements. Yes. Um, and and uh, especially with more and more people losing their insurance in Arkansas, that continues to be a slow moving <laughs> wave. Um, yeah, so, of people who are not meeting the reporting requirements yes, for and are thus getting right for work and booted are thus off getting, of Medicaid. Right. Yes, yeah, including people who probably could meet the requirements but are tripped up by all of the paperwork and well, and, and the requirement to have a computer. Yes, or, yes, or to file it by computer or to encounter a computer in rural Arkansas. Um, and so I think in terms of legislation, we might see something on surprise billing, which we talked about before. That's something Democrats and Republicans want to address. Um, those giant out-of-network hospital bills that people are struggling with, and uh, maybe something on drug prices, but we'll we'll have to see what they actually can agree on. So, Kimberly, now now, now that we've had sort of a week to to chew over things, what do you think uh, the next Congress is going to look like when it comes to health care? 
Well, some of it is going to be more symbolic votes of um, probably, you know, different bills that wouldn't necessarily pass, but more about getting voters to see what could happen if they were to elect a Democrat um, against President Trump. And um, so we're probably there's a lot of pressure coming from the Medicare for All caucus to say, look, we should hold hearings on this. We should probably vote on the bill, see who stands where. What's interesting is that I bet there's a lot of Democrats who don't want to vote on that. Well, um, the presumptive. Uh, leader Nancy Pelosi, or maybe I shouldn't say presumptive. I'm not sure where the votes stand now, but um, is is not someone who has signed on to the Medicare for All Act, um, and neither has um, Steny Hoyer. And so they're kind of, you know, they the might be in leader, charge, or right? Who will be the majority, mm-hmm. leader, right? And, and the they Democrats might be in charge, and then you have a large part of the caucus who is very much in favor of Medicare for All, and also some very high profile members who were sworn into office who um, have really vowed to take this step. You have outside groups like National Nurses United, who has shown up with um, Senator Bernie Sanders every time he introduces um, single payer bills, and they're saying things like, "Look, let's not do this band aid system of just trying to fix little parts of the healthcare system. We need an overhaul." And so there are going to be divisions in in inside of that. And it's really going to be about whether um, you can have individual members say, OK, well, maybe we can do some gradual fixes to things like drug prices. Um, and so, you know, that doesn't mean that so it doesn't mean they won't go along with those things, but they are going to want to demonstrate, you know, what it is that they plan to deliver on. Rebecca, I'm hearing a lot of talk among Democrats about having a vote on pre-existing conditions, um, which is odd. It's hard to know what they would vote on since it's already the law. It is already the law. So Jackie Rosen, who is a Democrat from Nevada who was elected to the Senate, she, as a House member, has introduced a bill that would allow Congress to intervene and defend the health care law, which is being challenged by this Texas court case. And I should point out that at the time of taping, we have not heard any decision from the Texas case, but we're (laughs) expecting one somewhat imminently. And so I think the plan is to potentially have a vote on that that bill by Jackie Rosen. Um, that would be an easy way for Democrats con- to demonstrate that they do care about pre-existing conditions, which we've talked about so many times. It's such a popular part of the law with Republicans and with Democrats. And I think that... Um, and that does have the support of Pelosi and Hoyer, by the way. It does. Yes. It does. Um, and it would put the Senate in... Uh, it would force the Senate to basically show its cards. I mean, we had, you know, remember Josh Hawley, one of the one of the attorneys general who is currently suing in, in the Texas suit to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act. And yet when he was running for Senate saying he supports pre-existing condition protection. So it would it would put people like him on the spot. It would. And it would be pretty interesting. Um, the Senate Republican answer so far has been this very narrow bill, which people have criticized because they say that in theory it protects pre-existing conditions, but it allows insurers to not cover certain pre-existing conditions. So that was a bill that was introduced in August by Tom Tillis. And so I think that that will be challenging. Um, There will be talk about this because this was such a big issue in the campaigns. Um, I am watching to see what will happen on on drug pricing. We've talked about that quite a bit. Um, I do think that there will probably not be a vote on Medicare for all because it is politically risky. And the members that we've talked to so far have said they don't expect that. But I think that um, that Kimberly is right, that there is a strong desire to talk about it, that I think two-thirds of the House Democratic Caucus last time had signed on to the bill. And so I think this will be a buildup for the 2020 election. So we're going to hear this drumbeat of people talking about this issue and trying to drive home the message that Democrats want to expand coverage. 
Well, last week we talked about the the Medicaid ballot initiatives in the states, but there were other ballot initiatives. Um, we mentioned there were a couple of reproductive uh, uh, health questions that, that went different ways depending on the state, but there was kind of a notable one in Alabama, right, Alice? Yes, there was a personhood amendment to the state constitution that passed. And when you amend the state constitution, unlike sort of pa- just passing a law through the legislature, it's a lot harder to challenge in court or or, or get overturned by a vote. Um, so that would have all kinds of legal implications. Most of it would not uh, have any impact unless there is a change in the national legal system around Basically, Roe v. Wade, Roe, Roe v. Wade would have yes. to be overturned. Yes. Although there were personhood amendments. This one kind of flew under the radar. Um, there was a big campaign in Mississippi some mm-hmm. years ago, and there I think it was on the ballot twice in Colorado. Right. And it failed every time yes. because the opponents pointed out that it would do things like ban in vitro fertilization. If you, you know, if you define life as, as beginning at conception, mm-hmm. you can't have embryos in a test tube, which right. is how you do in vitro fertilization. So there's some question about whether some of this might take effect sooner, or I guess people might be able to sue. I don't know. I mean, I right. Guess. And um, I mean, it has implications beyond that. I mean, it has implications for you know, a, a miscarriage or there's inheritance law weirdness there. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that that uh, it could impact. And so, you know, it, it's one thing to to pass um, a provision to vote for a provision. You know, oh, oh, I believe that life begins at conception. But once you start going down the road of what all of that means, it, it gets a little dicey. Well, the the um. Uh- not quite as uh, as as all encompassing, but there were soda tax uh, ballot questions in both Oregon and Washington, um, and this is a question on whether cities and counties should be able to impose taxes on soda and other sugary beverages. Um, basically, both of these were ballot initiatives aimed at blocking the ability of lower governments, um, you know, local and county governments, to impose what were called on both ballots grocery taxes. So they didn't talk. This was these were basically put there by the soda industry, but they didn't say that that's what it was about. Um, and interestingly, they came out differently with the measure failing in Oregon but passing in Washington. So that means that in Washington. States and city, I mean, city, excuse me, cities and counties can't do soda taxes, but in Oregon, in theory, they still can. What does this mean about the the strength of big soda? Well, this is one of the new playbooks that they're kind of employing um, in order to preemptively um, ensure that there aren't future taxes on sugary drinks. Um, and what's interesting is we haven't really seen any states kind of look at a major law, but then individual cities are popping up and saying this yeah, there's is something they want to target. Ones. Yeah, yeah. So that's. Why doing these kind of statewide measures that are even more encompassing than just soda? They, you know, they'll call it grocery, something like that, um, is a strategy that they're using in order to kind of ensure that these don't keep popping up. And um, there are there is some data to show that uh, people's intake of sugary beverages does decrease when uh, taxes are in place. Um, which is the point? Which is which? Is, well, the point the point is ultimately that people would be healthier. So the question obviously. Well, but I mean, is the point is not to, to raise money. The point is to deter people from drinking sugary beverages. Right. Right. Particularly and kids. For public health Right, <laughs> And it's interesting, though, because I, I have noticed that the beverage industry has changed a lot of its beverages. It has smaller cans now. It's really lowered the sugar in its drinks. It has looked to, for more education campaigns. So they've kind of slowly moved in that direction. And I think and they've taken a lot of sodas out of the schools, as I recall. They have. They yeah. supported those moves as well. So they're kind of saying, you know, let us work, you know, with consumers on this. They don't want to see it taxed necessarily. They think they're being unfairly targeted because um, people are getting their calories probably in other ways if they're not drinking soda. So um, so this is kind of one of the methods that they've employed in order to um, 
you know, preemptively. Um, it's not as though there was some kind of attacks in in question. It was just it's just to ensure that it doesn't you know end up happening. It was interesting, though. It was in those sort of two neighboring states, and it came out mm-hmm. opposite ways. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess we'll have to – it's a very, very mixed success here. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, as I mentioned at the top, Congress is back, and there are still spending bills up in the air, although no potential government shutdown will impact the Department of Health and Human Services because its appropriation got approved before the beginning of the fiscal year yes. for the first time in, what, 22 years? <laughs> it's been forever. Um, so the, the HHS uh, budget is is done and finished for until next year. But there are a bunch bunch of health-related issues that could still come up in the lame duck session of the 115th Congress. Rebecca, what's on the to-do list? It's a pretty long laundry list. Um, There are lots of reauthorizations and renewals that need to be done. Um, That must-pass appropriations bill, which will probably fund for about 30 percent of the budget that Congress is responsible for, that could carry along a lot of these things. They could hitch a ride on on this. So we have a lot of things. Um, It includes the renewal of a global health um, HIV and AIDS program called PEPFAR, which started under George W. Bush. Um, Some of the advocates are a little upset that it's really just a, a straight clean reauthorization. There's not a lot of changes to the policy. But then again, Congress is not really capable of doing a whole lot right now. And we see that also with the pandemic and preparedness bill that they the, need to the renew. The big bioterror bill or what yes. started as the big bioterror bill. Back um, 15 years ago, probably, is when BioShield started. So it's um, this would have grants from CDC to states to try to prepare for bioterrorism or, or any kind of pandemic or any kind of major event. Um, it has um, funding for early stage research. And it also has funding for the BioShield program, which is later stage research and stockpiling of all of these things that would help us if, God forbid, there was some sort of attack like that. So those are some of the things. The drug industry is also here <laughs> trying to say. get a win. We ha- it was really interesting earlier this year when the drug industry had a surprise loss because they were asked to fund more of the drugs in this coverage gap in Medicare, which we remember was such an unusual animal when it was created in 2003 in the drug law. Um, Basically, in Medicare, seniors have to pay a certain amount once they get to a a coverage threshold. Um, And the drug industry was asked to pay 70%. They're very upset about it. They want insurance companies to pay more. They want to get that down to 63%. So we'll see. Um, It was kind of interesting to see pharma take ahead on that. So, so even though the HHS budget is done, doesn't mean we won't see health things slipped <clears throat> mm-hmm. into the spending bill for the rest of the government. Absolutely. And they need to do that by, by December 7th. And we may have all sorts of fights about the wall and all sorts of other things, but... Mueller protection yes. bill. All yeah. sorts fights. of things. Yes. It could be busy. It could. <laughs> um, there's also, I, I just want to mention that the um, device in health insurance industry has not given up on further repeals on the taxes that were part of the health care law. So they're, they're, they're now all under delay, right? The, yes. the taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So which and I guess it's another they have another year to do this. It's not like the delay ends. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it isn't urgent yet, but they'd like to get it. They're always working on this. <laughs> always working on this. And, all right. So not every big health fight is between Republicans and Democrats. Case in point, the current rhetorical spat between the National Rifle Association and the nation's doctors. Apparently, this came in response to a position paper and a series of articles on gun violence published uh, by the American College of Physicians. And the NRA tweeted on November 8th 
that, uh, quote, self-important anti-gun doctors should stay in their lane. Doctors were not amused. What has ensued is a Twitter war featuring doctors posting blood-soaked pictures of themselves treating patients injured by guns uh, with the hashtag, this is our lane. This is obviously a small tussle in a larger war over federal funding of gun violence research. Where are we with that? It's in theory the the CDC is no longer banned from researching gun violence, but they're not really doing it, right? I think the issue is that there's not funding right. specifically put aside for it. So it's technically allowed, but it's not Congress has not directed them to do it. But they've they're no longer directing them not to do it. Right. Is my understanding. Right. <laughs> yes. So Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services uh, Secretary, did say that <clears throat> they're not banned from doing it because of this little provision that was in the funding bill that that's been carried since I actually covered this fight in nineteen ninety six when they first yes. put it in, when they basically said that that CDC <laughs> the CDC Injury Control Center, which is where the research was happening, mm-hmm. um, where basically, you know, they were there were published studies that having a gun in the house makes it more likely that someone will be injured. Um, but what what the language said in the bill is that that CDC can't fund any research that that promotes gun control and sir and that 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 had this chilling effect on all mm-hmm. its research and it basically stopped for 20 years. Right. And it's interesting the sponsor of that amendment Jay Dickey has actually come out re- and said, you know, it's been misinterpreted. That's mm-hmm. not what That we was meant. not what we thought. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Since there's in the most recent spending bill, there was language clarifying that they can go forward if they want to. But Alice is right. They don't have the money, and they say that that's the problem. But it was really, to me, very interesting to watch this Twitter war. And now there's not only just a hashtag, but a Twitter handle on this issue. This is mm-hmm. our lane. And you see these pictures of people, of you know, doctors literally with their scrubs just soaked in blood. And and it's been incredible after the American College of Physicians came out with this position paper. And, you know, the American Medical Association has been active on this. Two years ago, they called gun violence a, a public, public health, health crisis. Yeah. Right. And so and the American College of Physicians weighed in as well. And they're calling for things <clears throat> that are, are not... Um, are not out of the mainstream, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. I mean, they're they're talking in some ways. I mean, it depends on your point They're not calling for banning of, guns. Right. They're not. And, and in fact, in the ACP paper, it actually says, you know, we support the right to bear arms. We support the Second Amendment. But we think that these particular things mm-hmm. like universal background checks and um, making sure that domestic partners are not able, who, who are um, potentially at risk of, of injuring a loved one, are not able to get a gun. They went through this list of things. They they include in that things like banning assault weapons, which has been controversial. But <clears throat> physicians are speaking out in a way that I haven't seen before, and it's interesting to see. I mean, they've they've been. I I should say that they've been talking about this for twenty years, but they're really galvanized. And this really touched a nerve. I mean, yes. I was oh, just. Yes. I mean, there was. I think one of the, one of the tweets that I saw that was really it was a picture of a chair, and it was doctor said, "This is the <laughs> chair that I sit in when I tell families that their child mm-hmm. is dead due to gun violence." Mm-hmm. It was. I mean, they've they've been really, you know, been very heartfelt and and very. Um, mm-hmm. It's. I'm 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 surprised that this is what touched it off, but mm-hmm. it, it, it certainly is, I think, you know, it's going to gain <laughs> some momentum would be my guess. And I think it, it came off of momentum from the election we just saw where um, folks supported by uh, gun control groups and advocates uh, won. And students. 
yes, exactly. These new student groups that have popped up um, and Gabby Gifford's pack, uh, candidates they supported won big and candidates that NRA supported lost. And um, I think we're really seeing a, a tipping point here. And um, the NRA is spending less in elections and having a smaller influence than they used to. And so I guess picking fights with doctors on Twitter is the new front. I don't know. But that didn't go so well. So Well, we will. We well, will. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I think just to build on Alice's point, I think you can see this in public support, too. And what was interesting to me, I actually glanced back at some poll numbers. And the American public has typically been in favor of more strict gun laws. It's from 1990 forward. The high was 78 percent of Americans in 1990. Was, were in favor of stricter gun laws. And it, there was sort of an Obama administration decline. Mm-hmm. Um, it went down to a low of 43% of public support in 2011. But it's been coming back up. Early in March, it was 67% of Americans mm-hmm. favored stricter gun laws. So it's an interesting time, and Democrats have signaled that they really want to talk about this quite a bit. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll watch that next year, too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is as much time as we have this week. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We <clears> think <throat> others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at kff.org. Alice, why don't you go first this week? I was very interested in a piece uh, by Nicholas Bagley from the University of Michigan. <laughs> Go <laughs> blue. Julie's favorite. <laughs> um, that really broke down the legal arguments around the Trump administration's new steps that they just announced trying to roll back Obamacare's contraception mandate, um, broadening the exemptions so that many, many kinds of businesses and organizations and employers can request either a religious or moral exemption and not provide um, coverage for birth control in their employee health plans. Um, This was a a really uh, good walkthrough. So basically, the first version the Trump administration put out where they tried to just implement the rules right away without public comment, that was clearly illegal. It was blocked by courts. Uh, This is a more sticky question, although Bagley... Because they took public comment. Because they did take public comment. Now, he says that courts tend to frown upon doing public comment kind of after the fact, and it raises the question, do they really care what the public thinks if they tried to implement it without it, and now they're sort of doing it to cover their butts? So, but, you know, they are following the proper procedure now, so now it really comes down to the merits of the policy, and uh, Bagley thinks they're on pretty legally shaky ground here. Uh, A lot comes down to the word as. You should read his piece in full to to fully understand it. But basically, the agency, the Trump administration is claiming that government agencies have extremely broad powers to write these exemptions from, I mean, this is about the contraception mandate, but it really could apply to anything. And he compared what they're arguing to arguing that all red cars are exempt from seatbelt laws or that birth control is only covered on Tuesdays. Um, It's just claiming that they can write an exemption, you know, just based on their own sort of whims. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, and there's also a lot of questions about how many companies will attempt to get these exemptions and not provide birth control. The Trump administration gave a very low estimate of the number of companies that will go for this, uh, but there's really no way to know. <laughs> Kimberly. 
So I picked an article from Harper's Magazine, of which I'm a proud subscriber, um, and it's called Discovery Interrupted, How World War One Delayed a Treatment for Diabetes and Derailed One Man's Chance at Immortality. It's written by Jeffrey Friedman, and I really love these medical historical pieces. It was that, really interesting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't read it until you said it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I just I just love Harper's. I always learn something new. And so um, for those of you that kind of like history and that like to hear how um, treatments are created or not created... Um, I think it's a very fascinating read. Or, or create, or someone else gets credit. Or someone, exactly. Yeah. That's what happened. I didn't want to give too much of it away. <laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> so uh, the eye-popping drug prices that we've seen recently are a big focus right now politically. And I was interested in a New York Times piece. Something happened to U.S. drug cost in the 1990s. And it's an explainer about... Um, why we have such high drug costs here in America. And it's pretty simple. You know, drug companies can charge what they want to. There really aren't any barriers. And so he really kind of walked through the history and talked about how cancer and hypertension drugs in the 1990s and 2000s were introduced. And that led to some really um, spiraling, skyrocketing uh, cost. And he also talked about faster FDA approvals and other factors. And so I thought it was pretty interesting read and very timely. Well, mine is also from the New York Times. Uh, it's by Reed Abelson. It's called When Hospitals Merge to Save Money, Patients Often Pay More. It's not really new. Academics have been saying this for years, if not decades, that, that mergers don't necessarily, you know, they, they decrease competition and increase costs. But it's well worth reminding people about one of the bigger drivers of increased healthcare costs, in addition to prescription drugs. Uh, here's the money line in the story referring to a study conducted uh, for the story about mergers in 25 metropolitan areas between between 2010 and 2013, quote, the analysis showed that the price of an average hospital stay soared with prices in most areas going up between 11 percent and 54 percent in the years afterward. So one more one more discussion about, you know, all of these hospital mergers. And that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We'll do another Ask Us Anything soon. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Leonard K.L. At Rebecca Adams, D.C. We'll be back in your feed early next week for the holiday. In the meantime, be healthy.